good to see you all. If you're visiting with us, um, my name's Drew. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're going to be spending the next several minutes in the book of Ephesians. So please open your copy of God's Word to the book of Ephesians. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one under seats in front of you. And Ephesians is on, cha- on page 976 there. And if you don't own a Bible at home, you're welcome to take the one that you find under a chair with you. It's a gift uh, from us to enjoy God's Word. And so we're going to continue our worship this morning by looking at Ephesians chapter 1, and I say continue our worship because we believe that um, all of life is to be worship, and therefore our whole service together is to be a corporate worship service. It's not that we worship early in our service and then we move on to something else during this time. Uh, We recognize that when we pray, when we sing, uh, when we speak with one another, all of these can be acts of worship to God for His glory. And then as we spend time in God's Word, we want to have this be a time of worship as well. When we humble ourselves before Him, when we open ourselves to His Word as He speaks to us through His Word by the power of the Holy Spirit, we want to worship Him. And then we want to be equipped in this time so that we can worship God as we go in all of life. Uh, So worship isn't just singing, it's ideally all of life. And so that's why we're here gathered under His Word in this time together. So we're looking at the first section in Ephesians for these weeks, verses 3 to 14. And here we've been seeing, if you've been with us, that Paul, the apostle, is writing this and he is explosively celebrating the blessings of salvation. Paul does not have a thin or a small view of what it means to be saved. He doesn't view life as if we're kind of just humans doing our own thing. We've done a few bad things. God's up there a bit upset, but he decides he'll kind of just forgive us a little bit. So he kind of forgives us. And then salvation saying, wow, I'm so glad that I can be forgiven. Now I can go on with my life knowing that God you know, doesn't care about my sin anymore or something like that. No, what we're seeing is that Paul has this expansive vision of who God is and an expansive vision of what it means to be saved with all the blessings of salvation. And as he considers these, he's exploding in praise. And as he's exploding in praise here before us, he's inviting us to join in him in that praise. Praise not just in singing, but in all of life every moment, because all of life can be worshipped. So what we're seeing here is that this praise of God in verses 3 to 14 is like Niagara Falls. The triune God is overflowing with lavish grace and blessing to us. And it's as if the Apostle Paul is just bringing us up to the edge of Niagara Falls as we're overwhelmed by the sound and the power, and he's saying, look at that blessing there, and look at that blessing there, and look at that blessing there, just overwhelmed with praise. And we've seen as well that this Niagara of God's love and blessing Uh, has a triune shape to it because salvation has a triune shape to it. So he begins in verses 4 to 6 by focusing on the Father and how the Father chooses us for salvation and predestines us for adoption. And then in verses 7 to 10, we see that the Son, God the Son, Jesus Christ, accomplishes our salvation. So the Father plans it, and then the Son comes to accomplish it through His death and resurrection. The language there is redemption and forgiveness of sins. He sets us free from the power and the penalty of our sin. And then we see that everything in human history is working toward this ultimate goal of being united in and under the headship and kingship of Jesus Christ. 
And then in this last part of this section, verses uh, 11 to 14, the focus begins to shift a bit more to the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit applies salvation to us. The language that Paul will use here is that the Spirit is a seal and a guarantee um, of our inheritance to come, of all the blessings that are yet to come here. So, we're going to read this whole section together, verses 3 to 14, with a focus on this last part, verses 11 to 14. Let's read these together, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He, the Father, predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved, the Son. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him or in and under His headship, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory." Let's pray together. Our Father, we are coming to You to hear Your Word that You might transform us to worship You. As we read these realities, we long to have our minds expanded like the Apostle Paul's who wrote this. We want our hearts exploding with praise and joy like His. And so we pray that You would do for us like You did for Him and even beyond what we can ask or think. And we pray that You would do that even now as we're gathered together, that you would change the tone of our minds and hearts, change the mood that we've brought this morning from this past week, that in the midst of sorrows and hardship, you would give us a deep and abiding joy that would enable us to move through hardship with a trust in you and a joy in your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this final section that we just We read the whole thing and then moved to this final section, and what we're seeing is that this last section of verses 3 to 14 is God-centered, just like this entire section. Paul is showing us what a God-centered life feels like here. He's showing us how our understanding of God in this whole section fuels and can fuel a life of worship to God. He's showing us that deep thinking about God leads to deep joy in God. So we never want to separate and divorce and have a false dichotomy between thinking deep thoughts, studying theology, learning about God, and experience and joy because we see that they belong together. And so this section that we see at the end here in verses 11 to 14 show us three aspects of this God-centered life. 
It involves trusting God's sovereignty, enjoying God's presence, and living for His glory. So let's just walk through this text and consider these together. So first, trusting God's sovereignty. Verse 11, as we just read it, made some sweeping claims. Let's read it again slowly. In Him, Christ, we, those who trust in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So first, he says, we've obtained an inheritance. Or if you're reading from a different translation than the one I am, which is the ESV, it may say something like, we have been chosen. Now, I'm not entirely sure about the best way to understand this. The difference between the options is this. Is this saying that God has given us an inheritance, or is this saying that God chose us to be His inheritance? Different translations say different things. Um, it's just difficult to understand exactly how to translate this. Both of those are said in different ways in other, parts, in other parts of the Bible. So both are true in that sense. So we're not picking between what's true and what's not. We're just trying to understand what Paul's talking about here. So it's true that we've obtained an inheritance. Peter in 1 Peter 4, 1-4 says that we have an inheritance that's kept in heaven for us. Later in Ephesians, Paul refers to an inheritance in the kingdom of God. And so we're, impro- we're promised incredible blessings to come in the new creation. The new creation and the life with God in that world to come is our, the fullness of our inheritance, and we're waiting for it, and we've received it, and that's true. But I think it's probably best translated here something like we were chosen as an inheritance, or more specifically, we were chosen as God's inheritance. That's how Israel was referred to throughout the Old Testament. They were referred to as God's possession, as God's treasured possession, or as God's inheritance. Israel was God's chosen people among the nations. He didn't choose them because they were morally superior, but by sheer grace. And so now this is true. This identity is true of everyone who trusts in Jesus. We are God's personal possession, His inheritance. We are His people. I think that's what he's saying here, though that's true. That means we also have an inheritance. And so like many other times already in this section of praise, Paul praises God for how all of this is from his initiative. God is the one who decided to do this, and that's his point here. God's the one who planned it. He's the one who chose us for this. Look again at this verse. We have obtained or become an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, the Father, who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So Paul seems to be pulling out every word he can find to describe God's plan. He speaks of God predestining, of God's purpose, of the counsel of God's will. So he's saying that God has a plan for history. He's not passively watching history unfold. This is more than just saying that God is in charge in the way that we think of human beings being in charge and having a measure of authority. So I'm in charge of my four sons, right? But I don't have full control over what happens, which is clear if you watch me for a minute. Uh, I'm reacting in the moment all the time. And if you're a supervisor or you're in charge of people in your workplace, you have authority over them. You have given them some parameters within which they need to operate You get to cast some vision. You make some decisions. You correct some actions. But you don't control everything. You don't predict everything. You're responding to things as they come. That is not how God works. Paul doesn't just say that God is working some things according to His plan. 
He doesn't just say that God works many things according to his plan. He doesn't just say that God works most things according to his plan. He says that God is working all things according to his plan. So this is what we refer to as God's sovereignty over all things or his providence, his governance of all things. He oversees everything and he makes sure that everything without exception works together according to his ultimate purpose. So he is sovereign over all things. Nothing happens apart from his plan to work everything according to his will. So nothing happens in this world apart from him either causing it or allowing it to happen according to his purposes. This will either be incredibly disconcerting or incredibly comforting, depending on what else we believe about God. And so there's two additional truths we have to believe in addition to this that we get from the Bible. We see them here. First, God is wise. Notice that God isn't just working things together haphazardly. He's doing it according to the counsel of His will. So He's wise and everything is worked according to His wise plans. This doesn't mean that we always see His wisdom. It doesn't mean that we even just get to wait a few months or a few years and look back and then see His wisdom. We may live our whole lives wondering how in the world was this wise. I have no idea how an infinitely wise God could allow this to happen and fold this into His purposes. It doesn't mean that we'll see it. Um, but I'm reminded that my boys don't often see the wisdom in my plans. And if you watch me for a minute, you'll see that they don't see the wisdom in my plans all the time as well. I bring things into their lives, and I have a wise plan, and they don't always think it makes sense, but they need to trust me. And so we need to believe that God is wise. The second thing we need to believe is that God is good. So He's not just a wise ruler up there ruling the world according to His own wise purposes. He's good. He's gracious. He overflows with love toward us. Romans 8.28 says something very similar to what we read here. It says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things, so same kind of language here, right? All things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose, ultimately to make us like Jesus. So God is working everything together for His glory and for our good. This doesn't mean that everything that happens is good. It means that everything that happens, even things that are not good, even things that God hates, even things that God will judge, everything that happens is worked together for God's good, wise purposes. Now, I wondered at first why Paul didn't mention God's good purposes here like he did in Romans 8, 28. I mean, why did Paul just mention God's sovereignty and this language that refers to his wisdom? And here's the answer, I think, because that's actually what he's been emphasizing the whole time up till this point. God is good. God is gracious. He's lavishing us with grace and the riches of His kindness in love. He's predestining us. He's showing mercy. And then when he comes to verse 11 here, he wanted to encourage us by saying that God is not just good and kind and merciful. He's also sovereign over all things. Why? Why would this be important to bring up? Because if God is good and kind, but He doesn't actually have the authority and power to bring it out, bring it about, then what good is that in the end? If God has good intentions that He can't actually 
make good on? What good is it being God's possession and His inheritance and having an inheritance if we're not sure in the end it's going to get worked out? What if we're not sure if God's powerful enough to guard us and keep us to the end? So, God's sovereignty is brought in here not to make us think, oh, now I don't know if God is really good. I just heard all this stuff about God's love and grace and mercy. Now I don't know what to think about Him. In fact, it's just the opposite. We can say, I can bank on His goodness because this is a God who works everything according to His wise and good counsel and heart. So, these are the kinds of truths about God that we need to know already when we enter into seasons of suffering, as many of you know. Some of you are going through those now. Some of you are going through the hardest moments of your life up to this point. And if we don't know God in this way, it will be incredibly hard to find our footing and get through those seasons. But there's a difference uh, between believing these truths in our heads and really experiencing them. That's why Paul's bringing these up to show us to, to enjoy this kind of God and these kinds of realities. This helps us go through seasons that are hard with a deep calm because we don't just know things that are true about God, we know Him. We know Him as the God who's with us and for us. We know His presence that will give us poise and a deep inner strength. Because a storm may be swirling, but if we know that God is sovereign and that He is wise and that He is good, then even though we don't see His wisdom and even though the experience is not itself good, we can trust that He'll get us through this storm. The outcome's secure. Yesterday I was celebrating um, a friend of mine's uh, birthday with some other um, people, and someone asked us all to share what was maybe the most impactful thing this friend has said to us since we've known him. And I was really struck by what someone said. Uh, they said about, about this guy, they said, when he was sick with pretty bad sickness, he just said at one point that he knows that he's okay because God's working it together for his glory and my good. So here's a guy going through suffering, and it, it was the most impactful thing he said to his friend as his friend thought back, because he saw his friend suffering saying, I know that God is working this together for his glory and my good. So there's someone who had that sense of calm that came from believing in this God. So that's the first aspect of a God-centered life from this text. We trust in His sovereignty. Second, enjoying God's presence. In verses 13 to 14, Paul focuses attention on the Holy Spirit. So we've seen these past few weeks that the Father plans salvation, the Son accomplishes our salvation, and now this, we see the Spirit's role in our salvation. If you look back in, at verse 3, that was kind of the heading over this whole section. It's the, the edge of the waterfall as it's coming over. It says that the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, and we saw that spiritual there doesn't mean ethereal or non-physical. It's every blessing of the Spirit. It's a spirit given blessing, spiritual in that sense. So then the Spirit's the one who applies these blessings to our lives. And Paul draws attention to two blessings of the Spirit in particular. And before we look at these blessings, it's helpful just to note that some people uh, neglect the Holy Spirit, don't pay attention to the Holy Spirit, don't know what to think about the Holy Spirit, don't talk about the Holy Spirit, don't like hearing about the Holy Spirit. Other people react to that and start to seek to pursue the Holy Spirit, but then they make things up about the Holy Spirit. They don't know they're doing that, but they attribute things to the Spirit that are actually true of Him. And so what we want to do is just be tethered to the Bible. 
we want to embrace the Holy Spirit and love the Holy Spirit, but we want to believe the things that the Bible says about the Holy Spirit. And I think one of the reasons why we either neglect the Spirit or we make things up about Him and attribute things to Him that you can't find anywhere in the Bible is because we just don't appreciate the things the Bible actually says about the Holy Spirit. Kind of boring to us. Or we don't understand because His work is so pervasive that it's sometimes going to be hard, even hard to pinpoint. Um, so as we look at these two blessings, these are two blessings connected to the Spirit I don't usually uh, hear mentioned or talk about myself. So let's consider these and embrace the role of the Holy Spirit that Paul is celebrating here. So first, we were sealed with the Spirit. He says in verse 13, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. In the first century, seals were used for reasons. Very often, someone would put a seal on something to mark it out as his or her own possession. It's like branding an animal. When someone branded an animal, it was saying, this animal is mine, and it's valuable to me, and I'm going to protect it and keep it and guard it. Sometimes seals were used to show the authenticity of things. I have too many boxes of memorabilia from the NBA in the mid to late 90s, uh, early mid to late 90s, and I have several things, too many things, that, that have Michael Jordan's name on them, um, and I have things that are signed by different guys. I loved Tracy McGrady and Michael Jordan and all these guys, but all these really special things that I received would have a certificate of authenticity to show that someone didn't just grab a Sharpie, scribble a name, and make a few hundred bucks. And some of those certificates had a gold sticker on them with an imprint, right? It was sealed. It was raised ridges so that I can run my fingers over there and be assured I didn't waste my money. Well, I might have wasted my money, but I can, I can maybe get it back by someone else who might want to waste their money. So, <laughs> proves its genuineness, its authenticity. So, this is what God did in giving us the Holy Spirit. He gave us the Spirit as a way of saying, this is mine. This is my possession and he or she is real and enabled to be filled by the Holy Spirit and mine forever. God's inheritance. So, some of you aren't sure what the Holy Spirit does. Here's one thing he does. He seals you. He is the seal. The Father gives him to us as a seal. So, that's the first aspect of the gift of the Spirit here. And the second is that the Spirit is a guarantee. Look at verse 14. The promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. So, this word guarantee refers to a down payment. It's like a down payment on a house. If you purchase a home, you put a down payment there. And what is that? Well, it's, it's part of the whole payment of that house, and it's a promise that the rest is coming. And here's why Paul's bringing this up as a reason to overflow with praise to God. Here's why Paul is using this aspect of God's blessing to praise God for. It's because when God gives us the Holy Spirit, what He's doing is He's giving us a foretaste of all the riches of the glory to come. He's letting us have a foretaste of the future new creation to come. So, God isn't just giving us the Holy Spirit as kind of like just a token or a pledge just to say, well, I'm going to give you this now, which is okay, but this just lets you know that I'll make good on my word to give you something better later, something different but better later. That's not what He's saying. This is part of all that's to come. It's a down payment on all that's to come. So this is like the first course of the meal. 
The first course signals that more is coming, but it's part of the enjoyment of the meal itself. It's the beginning of the meal. So I think to make this um, make more sense, perhaps, it would help if we step back and keep the big story of the Bible and history in mind. So let's just zoom big wide-angle lens for just a few moments. Genesis 1 and 2, beginning of the Bible, beginning of history, we see that the world was created originally good. God's presence was with humanity. It's like heaven and earth were fused together, and we were made to enjoy God's presence in a perfect world filled with joy. And then when sin entered the world in Genesis 3, it's as if heaven and earth split apart in a sense. Adam and Eve left the garden. They left the place of God's presence in the place of blessing in that sense, though God would send His blessing with them. And then the Old Testament, God's begin, God begins to help Israel, God's people, anticipate how He's going to restore all things and get the world back to like it was in Eden, but even better. And so He makes promises to renew all things, to merge heaven and earth again, to dwell with His people again. And so he has them build the tabernacle, which is this portable tent, which then is later the temple, which is a more stable structure. And the whole point of that is that that was like a mini picture of the way the world was in Eden, where God is dwelling with his people. And it was a picture then of what God would do in the new creation to come, where there wouldn't be a tabernacle or or temple because the whole creation would be like a temple with God's presence everywhere with his people and the fullness of joy in knowing him together as his people, where God would dwell with us. And then in the prophets, the prophets would promise that God would one day pour out his Holy Spirit on his people, and he would put the Holy Spirit in his people, that God would dwell with them again. And then so we believe then that this future is coming, the new creation where God's pervasive presence will be the renewal of all things, all things moving to this time like Ephesians 1, 10 said, where everything is being united in and under the headship and kingship of Jesus. But here's what Paul's saying, what Paul's saying here. Part of that future to come has broken into the presence, the thunderment. This is an important point. Just kidding. Um, his future has broken into the present which means the future enjoyment of God's presence and His blessing as the world will be made new and made right, like Eden but better. That's begun. And the way we know it's begun is because we have the Holy Spirit. God Himself is dwelling with us and in us, and that's a down payment of more to come. And it's a guarantee that if we have the Spirit now, we're going to have Him forever and be with the triune God forever. So here's the point. We were always meant to dwell with God, and God's going to make that happen. So how do we get this? Maybe you're not yet a Christian, and you're wondering what it would be like to become a Christian, and you're just thinking and learning about who Jesus really is, and you wonder, what would it be like for me to receive the Holy Spirit like this? I mean, that's quite a spectacular promise, right? I was reading a theologian just this past week, and he just kind of paused in what he was writing, and he said, we understand what's going on here, the Holy Spirit's in us, that means Christians are quite peculiar people, right? Quite extraordinary, actually extraordinary was his word, that's a better word, though we are peculiar. Um, Quite extraordinary people. So, what would it be like to receive this? And the truth is we can receive the Spirit even today, even right now. Because look at what verse 13 says about how we receive it. He said, in Him, in Christ, you also 
thinking of the readers here, the original readers in Ephesus, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who's your guarantee. So this happens simply through receiving, through hearing and believing, and then receiving the Spirit in that sense. The book of Acts tells us how this happened to these people in Ephesus who first read this letter in the first century. The city of Ephesus was filled with people who were just minding their own business. They didn't have a clue who Jesus was. They didn't really care about the history of God's dealings with the Jewish people or the sacred writings or anything like that. They're worshiping false gods. They're serving various images they made. And then Paul shows up and he starts speaking to them words, just words. He's standing there speaking to them what he calls here the word of truth. The gospel of your salvation, gospel, glad tidings, good news. He's just announcing great news. And he was doing that day after day after day for a couple of years so that Acts says that everyone in the whole city and the region heard because Paul's just saying words over and over and over. And as people heard these words, they were filled with joy and started to say these words to their family and their friends and their neighbors and their coworkers so that these words were spread all over the place. And what Paul says is happening is as these words were spread, people received the Holy Spirit because they believed in Him. They believed in Jesus. So what were these words? Well, they were words like, God created the world and everything in it, and He made us for His glory and His pleasure, but we've walked away from Him. We've been aloof from Him. We've worshiped anything else other than Him, even good things like family and work and money. And God has grace for us, though. Though we deserve His judgment, He has sent Jesus, His Son, to accomplish our salvation, to live a perfect life, the life we failed to live to die on the cross for our sins in our place as a sacrifice. Then Jesus rose from the dead and he's exalted as king and history is moving toward the day when all things will be united in and under Jesus Christ. And now God promises to pour out his Holy Spirit on the world. And so if you believe in Jesus, you believe this word of truth, this good news of your salvation, you turn away from your sin and your God aloofness and you open yourselves up to him through repentance and faith. He, he saves you, and you receive the Spirit, and you enjoy already part of the goodness that's to come in the new creation. So this is the gospel of your salvation, it says, the word of truth. Our culture doesn't have many things that are called truth. We have perspectives on truth, and so our culture needs this good news that there's a word of truth, and it's a good message. It's good news of our salvation. It's freedom from the enslaving habits in our life, freedom from the penalty of our sin before God, freedom from guilt and shame. So this is about how we can live forever with God, and yet also how even now God comes to live with us by the Spirit. So now Paul says, I want you to know all the blessings you've had, and one of the greatest blessings is this, the Holy Spirit, who's a seal and a down payment. All right, final aspect of the God-centered life is living for God's glory. Some of you may struggle with a sense of purpose. You wonder how your life can have any significant meaning. You wonder what you're supposed to be doing. You wonder how your life can be significant. Others of you don't struggle with this. You don't think about it at all. You're just moving through life, and it doesn't cross your mind that life needs to have a meaning or a purpose or some deep significance. Others of you may not struggle with it because you do think your life has a purpose. You've been locked into it. Maybe it's family or work or maybe accomplishing something big. But here's what we see here, that there is a great purpose, a greater purpose, the greater, greatest purpose for life that God 
welcomes us into. And it's this, to be to the praise of His glory. You can see it in verses 12 and 14 here, to the praise of His glory. He said something similar in verse 6. This is like a refrain running through. In verse 6, He said to the praise of His glorious grace. So, this is the refrain of this whole section of praise. Paul began by saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, he's praising God right there, and then he stops every once in a while through this overflow of praise to say to the praise of His glorious grace, that we might be to the praise of His glory. He does this to the praise of His glory. So, He adopted us to the praise of His glorious grace. He redeemed us and made us His possession to the praise of His glory. He gave us the Holy Spirit to the praise of His glory. What is God's glory? It's His beauty. The glory is His his radiance, His worth, His weightiness. And so, Paul's saying that God shows His worth, His beauty, His splendor, his radiance, the the weight of who He is and the way He saves us, and that as we receive all of this, we stand back and we say, wow, this is a glorious God, and I'm going to live to the praise of His glory. Paul's saying that all of history exists to put God's beauty on display, and that the greatest joy we can have is to receive His salvation so that we might have eyes open to behold Him and to know Him and to enjoy Him. This is why our purpose as a church begins this way, to glorify God by being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. We want to honor God. We want to show His worth, His weightiness, His beauty in the way that we live. And as disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, and as we help other people get caught up into this great purpose. This is why our first value as a church is the glory of the triune God as our highest aim. The glory, the beauty, the worth of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, as our highest aim. This is why the Westminster Shorter Catechism begins with this question and answer. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever, Uh, which we've learned often are not two things but one. We glorify God by enjoying Him forever. So, one of the greatest gifts of salvation is to fulfill this purpose, to glorify and enjoy God. And we're encouraged to do this by simply beholding how great He is, by enjoying the blessings of salvation. Paul can't help himself. And so, the goal is for us to have this as our driving passion as well, our driving passion of our lives, not to make a little or a lot of money, not to get out of debt, not to get the promotion we want, not to have a nicer home, not to raise a decent family, not to live a long life. Those are great. Those are blessings of God. All those are fine. They can be good gifts. But the overriding purpose can be way bigger than all of that and be something that all of that gets caught up in. The overarching purpose can be the purpose of history, which is to live for the praise of God's glory, to think about Him and delight in Him, to love Him, to speak of Him, to enjoy the Spirit's presence, to enjoy thanking Him, to look forward to the new creation to come where the greatest blessing will be God Himself, to live all of life with wide-eyed wonder at how creation itself displays the glory of this God that we've come to know through the Scriptures. So, how do we respond to a text like this? Here's just a few encouragements. Um, First, let's use this text as a model for daily praise. This is the kind of thing that Paul praises God for. Take this text then, I encourage you, you know, underline the key blessings of this text and just open this up 
and praise God through this text. I know some of you already do this. I got this idea from some of you. So thank Him for choosing you. Thank Him for adopting you. Thank Him for redeeming you and forgiving you. Thank Him for bringing everything into unity in and under Christ. Thank Him for sealing you with the Holy Spirit. And then don't just thank Him, but give Him direct praise for who He is. Salvation and these blessings reveal His glory. Praise Him for His wisdom in planning it this way. Praise Him for His lavish grace that He overflows to you. Praise Him for the power in making this all happen and His sovereignty in moving all things in history toward this great end. Praise Him for His beauty as a trinity. Praise the Father for planning salvation and the Son for accomplishing salvation and the Spirit for applying salvation. Second, Whenever you think about God and salvation, I encourage you to intentionally just take a moment and just think a big thought about Him. Think big thoughts about God. A couple sociologists studied the common beliefs of American youth, and they summarized what they found with this phrase you've heard before, moralistic therapeutic deism. So I've mentioned this study before. I'm sure you've heard it from other places as well. This study is about 15 years old now. And so it's becoming clear this isn't just what the youth of 15 years ago believed. It's pervasive among people of all age groups in America. Moralistic therapeutic deism captures the beliefs well. It gives a vision of a deity who created the world and now watches it move along. This God wants people to be nice to each other, and He'll reward them with heaven if they're good. This God is pretty uninvolved in our lives until a crisis comes and we ask Him for help, and He might. And the central purpose in life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. So now you can just see the contrast between that vision of God and this one that we've been considering, can't you? And we can see the contrast in this small vision of life with this massive vision of life here. The Father plans our salvation out of a heart of love and wisdom. The Father adopts us into His own family to give us a place of belonging. The Son doesn't just reward good people, He redeems bad people, us. All of history is moving forward, not just arbitrarily as God stands back and watches it. No, it's moving forward toward the day when everything is set right and made new, and Jesus Christ is King over all things. The Holy Spirit then is given to God's people as a down payment of what's yet to come, and so our purpose is not to feel good about ourselves, but to feel good about God, to feel great thoughts about God, to live to the praise of His glory, and then that is where true happiness is found. So, intentionally think and speak of big truths about God, and think triune thoughts about God, right? This isn't just an abstract deity. Pervasively all over the New Testament, if you just look at how the authors are writing, they're not just talking about God. They're talking about Father, Son, and Spirit. And very often when the term God is used, it's often used to refer to the Father, and then the Son is brought up very quickly. The Son is also called God in places because this is a triune God. But we, we think of the Father and the Son and the Spirit as this one God who eternally exists in three persons. And so we praise this God. Uh, third, uh, disciple others in these truths. So we think big thoughts about God, we praise Him for these things, and then we disciple others in these truths. Think about what Paul is doing in this letter. He's he has embraced and enjoyed this God, but he's not keeping it to himself. He's not just praising God quietly on his own. 
The reason we even know about these truths from is because he took up pen to paper and had this written for Christians to hear and believe and rejoice in. He was able to praise God for these realities because he studied deeply. He had deep theology. And so this is an encouragement for us to intentionally share life with each other and talk about these things. Pray together. Talk about what we're learning in God's Word together. Ask each other what we have questions about these days about God and the Bible and truth. What's on our mind? What are we wrestling with? What are we excited about? So I encourage you to have those conversations. I know many of you do. So all the more to some of you, and let's start for others who may not. So I encourage you to read a good book about the Trinity or about salvation. Those are two of the main topics here in this text we've been considering. You can grab some at our resource corners. As a reminder, those are discipleship resources, and so we never just have one copy of any book over there because the intention is for us always to be able to grab a couple of them so we can read and study together as friends and people who help each other follow Jesus as disciples. So let's disciple each other in these truths. And then finally, let's take each of us, let's take responsibility to, as we embrace and celebrate these truths, uh, let this spill over into creating a tone in our lives. In other words, let's each take responsibility to set a tone like this one in our relationships, in our meetings, in our workplace, in our homes, in our small groups, as we talk with each other here on Sunday morning. This is what God is like. He overflows with lavish grace and kindness, and this should create a people who feel a bit like that who feel like people who are just shocked that they have a God like this who loves them, and then who begin to become like that toward each other. Now, that doesn't mean there's no rebuke and exhortation and seriousness. Paul will get to that even later in this letter. But this is how he starts out. This is a tone-setting beginning. And so, it's an encouragement to me to live in light of this and let this be a dominant tone. So, we're going to sing together of our great salvation and of this triune God, and then go on and continue worshiping in all of life. So let's pray, and then we'll sing. Our Father, we uh, thank You for Your lavish blessings. Thank You for blessing us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We thank You, Jesus, for accomplishing our salvation, redeeming us and forgiving us, and we look forward to the day when all things are brought into unity in and under Your kingship. Holy Spirit, we thank You for sealing us, for marking us as gods, and for being with us as a down payment. So we want to enjoy Your presence. And so, Father, Son, and Spirit, we thank You. In Jesus' name, amen. When you laid the earth's foundation, morning stars burst into song. Shouts of joy from tongues of angels, highest praise to you belong. Hallelujah to the Father. Hallelujah to the Son. Hallelujah to the Spirit, praise around you, in one. In a garden long forgotten, 
death our sins had led. Come, you cursed, and hear the promise. He will crush the serpent's head. Hallelujah to the Father. Hallelujah to the Son. Hallelujah to the Spirit. Praise the sins on Him were laid. Here is love beyond all telling. With our blood as Hallelujah to the Father. Hallelujah to the Son. Hallelujah to the Spirit. Father, who has chosen us and predestined us for adoption, and the Son, who has redeemed us with His blood, and the Spirit, who is given to us as a seal and a down payment of the glory to come. May this triune God be with us every moment of every day this week, that we might live to the praise of His glory. Go in peace.